My special guest tonight is Chris Hedges. He's a journalist and author, and he's the host of the Chris Hedges Report on Real News Network. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks. Sure. I have to tell you, um, I read a lot of Substack articles. I don't get to read everyone's all the time, but I do make a, I take an effort to read yours every week. I think they're really good. Thanks. All right. So the first thing I do want to talk to you about, um, we've been talking on this show a little bit about liberal hypocrisy. And it's just something I've noticed. I've lived in Boston for like 10 and a half years now, and I've noticed it more so here uh, than I did when I lived in the South. And a couple of years ago, there was a Boston Globe study that revealed that white families in Boston had a net worth of 250K roughly, and black families had a net worth of $8. I know that at some point you lived in the Roxbury neighborhood in Boston. Today, that neighborhood is being heavily gentrified like a lot of the other ones in the Boston area. And so local Bostonians have been pushed out due to increased rent. There's a significant racial wealth gap in Boston as well that's also happening. And unfortunately, what I've noticed, it's been mainly liberals that are driving that wealth gap. And so the question that I have for you, why do you feel that this is happening by the same group that tends to preach a lot about equality? Well, because that's precisely what they do. They preach about it, but they don't do anything about it. So I always say I learned to hate liberals when I went to Harvard Divinity School and I lived in Roxbury and commuted into Cambridge, uh, where all my classmates were talking about empowering people they never met. Uh, they would go to, this was the time of the Sandinistas, they would go down to Nicaragua and pick coffee for a week and then spend the rest of the semester talking about it, but they wouldn't uh, spend 20 minutes on the green line to go out to where I was. I was across from Mission Maine, Mission Extension, housing project, which has been rebuilt. But when I was there, they were the worst projects in the city, uh, you know, where people were being warehoused a little better than animals. Uh, so that, that is, uh, that's how liberals function. It's about moral posturing. It's not about doing anything. It's why Malcolm X said he'd uh, much prefer to deal with a southern overt southern racist than a northern white liberal uh and i f i feel much the same way uh they uh it, it's all about presentation it's all about uh their def defining themselves as the kind of moral arbiters of society which is why when those of us on the left criticize them uh they are the attack dogs used to take us down uh, as soon as you, and, and liberals are accepted within the power, this comes out of Chomsky, of course, accepted within the power, unless they question the virtues of power. So it's all the people like George Packer who say, well, we went into Iraq with such good intentions. Or you can go back to Anthony uh, Lake, who used to write for the New York Times. Well, Vietnam was a mistake, but we wanted to help, you know. But as soon as you actually begin to dissect the very nefarious motives of the power elite, you're pushed out. Uh, and, and that's always traditionally been the function of liberals. It's why they are allowed to exist within a capitalist democracy. So if you look, for instance, at the inception of the war in Iraq, it was primarily sold to the American public by liberals. I mean, the day the war started, I was on uh, um, Terry Gross's show, uh, 
and uh, given 15 minutes to explain why we shouldn't be going into Iraq. And then I was followed by Michael Ignatiev, who I know very well, uh, who talked about protesting the war in Vietnam. And you see the same kind of rhetoric with Ukraine. So if the liberals are a kind of, if they're willing to serve the interests of power, which being good careerists, many of them are. I mean, Packer is a classic example. Uh, one of the worst cheerleaders of the war in Iraq and now one of the biggest cheerleaders of the war in Ukraine. That's why they function. It's why those of us who come out of the radical left despise them so much. Well said. Um, one example that happened more recently, uh, we have a newer mayor here in Boston, Mayor Michelle Wu. She was pretty much the progressive candidate, so to speak. Um, but she has not been, uh, I would say, governing that way as a progressive. So uh, recently we did have white supremacists march through downtown Boston. This has been happening across the country uh, through the Patriot uh, group. And Michelle Wu, uh, rightfully so, called it out. But at the same time, you know, I talked to Mayor Wu and I explained to her why, you know, you're allowing developers to come into these communities like Jamaica Plain and Roxbury, and you're allowing those developers to buy those apartment buildings and push those residents out. So these are their communities. This is where they've lived their whole lives. So I get that you're calling out overt racism, but at the same time, I feel like you're somewhat complicit in systemic racism, which keeps people, you know, constantly struggling here in an expensive city to begin with. Right. Well, that's the whole point. They don't address institutional racism. All those interlocking systems to keep the, the work, to keep the poor, poor, the courts, the schools, the police, the probation officers, the banks, that red line, nobody can get loans. I mean, uh, so uh, that's never addressed. So I teach in a prison. And I, you know, sometimes mo most of my students will come from cities like Camden, which I think is 97% uh, people of color. And they'll sometimes say, a student will say, well, I know nobody ever said the N-word to me. Nobody ever. And I said, well, okay, describe to me what your public school looks like. And of course, it's a shambles. They go through metal detectors and uh, they, they can't get uh, an education beyond basic numerical literacy. And I said, okay, now I'm going to describe to you what the Princeton public school looks like. I live in Princeton with its $1 million black box theater and its Olympic size pool and its array of, I said, that's racism. That's how it works. Well said. Um, one of the things we've been talking about over at RBN we are, you know, pretty much done with the two-party system. A lot of us were supporters of Bernie Sanders. We canvassed for Bernie Sanders, donated money to his campaign, as well as members of the squad as well. Uh, we have found that we can help people more so by doing direct action and mutual aid. So that's kind of where we've been putting like most of our focus. When you think about like movements that have happened in this country, I always point to the civil rights movement because at that time it was unpopular, but it became very successful. And so the question I have for you, do you think we could have a movement like that in this country today, but this time a class movement where working class and poor people were fighting together here and marching the same way the activists did during the civil rights movement. Do you think that could happen and why or why not? Well, let's uh, differentiate between the civil rights movement and the black power movement because they're different. So Martin Luther King attracted white liberals, largely from the North. Now, at the end of King's, uh, toward the end of King's life, 
he, he began to sound more and more like Malcolm. And in fact, David Halberstam did an interview with King, I think a few months before he died and said he sounded like a nonviolent Malcolm X. I mean, Malcolm X was a nonviolent Malcolm X, but there was a convergence there and understanding that uh, if you didn't eradicate economic racism, you would never eradicate racism. Well, that's when the white liberals began to walk away from King. Uh, and figures like Fred Hampton, uh, who this amazing uh, Chicago Black Panther, who actually united uh, poor whites and poor blacks. Of course, he was assassinated by the FBI and the Chicago police when he was 24. That they can't accept. Uh, I, I think the future is organizing, uh, like with the Amazon warehouse, and it, you know, not going in and asking people whether they voted for Trump, uh, but but by organizing against centers of power, that is an education of itself. We forget that all successful labor movements have a heavy educational component. Uh, and the ruling elite is gonna work very hard to make sure that those racial divisions are exacerbated. That's why uh, the ruling elite uh, was supporting Trump over Sanders. If you remember, even the major democratic donors like Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO, of Goldman Sachs, there's an organization full of people who should be actually should be in prison. Uh, he's said that if Sanders was the nominee, uh, which the Democratic Party is never going to allow, he would vote for Trump. So this whole mantra of the least worst it doesn't apply to them, the oligarchs. It only applies to us. Uh, you saw that in there were two campaigns where uh, the military-industrial complex and the corporate elite were felt challenged. One was 1948 with Henry Wallace. They destroyed him. He had been Roosevelt's vice president. The other was the 1972 campaign with McGovern. And there you saw a very similar process where the ruling oligarchs, both within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, united to destroy Wallace and then united to destroy McGovern. Uh, and now we see a similar phenomena where the ruling oligarchs from the Republican Party have fused themselves with the ruling oligarchs of the Democratic Party. I'm talking about the traditional Republican Party, the Bushes, Liz Cheney, uh, to counter this kind of right-wing populism, proto-fascism uh, that uh, has uh, risen up uh, within and taken over the Republican Party. My friend Glenn Ford used to call it Trump's white man's party. Uh, and uh, but I think that you know you had Robert Reich uh, wrote a column a couple of weeks ago saying maybe Liz Cheney would be our best candidate. For president, this is utter insanity. Uh, but I think it shows the moral bankruptcy of the liberal elite and the liberal class. So it's all about organizing because there you can cross racial lines in an Amazon warehouse, for instance. So I, I teach these amazing students, and if they have a 3.1, they get out, they can matriculate to Rutgers and finish their degree. Well, a lot of my students have been organizing the service workers at Rutgers University, my students are black, almost all of them, uh, and a lot of these workers voted for Trump, but that's irrelevant. And I think the left has kind of committed suicide by uh, going down that rabbit hole of woke culture and cancel culture, and which not only doesn't play out with the working class, it doesn't play out with any of my students in prison. They don't have time for that at all. I'm, I'm interested too in reference to organizing because I think one of the, one of the things that I struggle with we have more technology now, we have social media, we have internet. And when I think about activists back in the 60s and the 70s, they didn't have any of that. And they were able to get hundreds and thousands of people together. 
Uh, we try to organize a lot, like across like social media platforms. Um, it's it's a struggle, uh, especially with a platform like Twitter, just because there's always people that come in that they're they're infiltrators. They pretend like they're for the cause, and then they turn on you, or they get people to be against it. And I'll give you a perfect example. Last year, we had the marches for Medicare for All. They were in different cities across the country, and there were some nefarious actors. They pretended like they were they were for it and then obviously turned on us as well. I was really surprised to see the number of people that they went along with Bernie Sanders movement and Bernie Sanders told us it's about the 99% and we need Medicare for all. Some of those same people, when we were like, yes, we still need to fight for these, these issues, all of a sudden, because it wasn't attached to a campaign, they didn't like it. They, they thought it was a bad idea. They didn't want to protest. They didn't want to march. Or they say, like, what is a march actually going to do? Um, what has been your experience in reference to that, like direct action? And when you get those kind of comments that come through, like, well, what is a march going to do? Well, so social media like Twitter is very useful in creating flash mobs. Uh, you can get a large number of people like the Women's March on Washington against Trump. Uh, but it's not a good and effective tool for building, for organizing, which uh, is about building personal connections. So I was spent a lot of time in Zuccotti Park during Occupy. There you saw uh, people building relationships and building connections uh, quite potently. Uh, so social media is effective in terms of getting out a message quickly. Uh, it's effective in getting people to gather at a certain point uh, for a one-off. Uh, but it's not effective at building movements. Mo movements are built the old-fashioned way. Uh, and they, as we saw, you look at uh, what Chris Smalls did in Staten Island. I mean, that's, I mean, how many years did it take him uh, to build that union? I think it's two or three years. That's what it takes. Uh, it's almost person by person. And that's what we have to go back to, to doing. Uh, and if you're sitting alone in front of your screen, uh, not only are you not really doing activism, but you're exactly where... The ruling elites want you to be, which is alone in front of your screen. Good point. Good point. Um, in reference to Occupy Wall Street, that was a movement that I felt was actually on the right path. You know, Obama came in and stopped that like a lot of different things. But I look back on it sometimes and I wonder if it was a good idea for Bernie Sanders to take that same message about the 99% versus the 1% and run it through a political campaign. Because I've seen this happen before where there's been these movements and there's been action on the ground. Democratic Party comes in or gets a hold of it. They co-opt the movement. The message has changed and people just don't feel it the same way they did anymore. I look back on that and I wonder, instead of like taking that message and running it through a political campaign through the Democratic Party, why do you feel Bernie Sanders didn't choose to go out and fight with the Occupy movement outside of electoral politics instead of running that message through a political campaign? Well, I know why, because he didn't want to destroy his political career. And that's not uh, conjecture. I was with Bernie uh, on the climate march in New York. I think it was 2014. I was with Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben and Shama Sawan. And before the event began, Shama, who's a fireball, uh, was just pushing Bernie to run as an independent. And uh, Bernie finally exasperated, said, I don't want to end up like Ralph Nader. And as a caveat, I'm very close to Ralph. I was a speechwriter when he ran. Uh, well, that's kind of said it all. In other words, he didn't. He knew that if he stepped outside and challenged the Democratic Party, they would destroy him the same way they destroyed Nader. 
uh, and he didn't want to take that risk. So uh, Occupy changed the language, not just of the Sanders campaign, but uh, just changed the language by which we speak about the rise of this oligarchy and the, 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 the worst kind of uh, social inequality in American history. Uh, and yes, Bernie co-opted it. And to be fair to Bernie, I think Bernie's commitment to the working class is real. Uh, I don't think like a figure like John Edwards, you know, would use that language, uh, but has never shown any real interest in the, never showed any interest in the working class. But I think the commitment is real, but Bernie stops at that line. He, he won't go after the Democrats. Uh, he, of course, caucused with the Democrats. Remember, he campaigned for Bill Clinton in 1996, and that was after Clinton not only passed NAFTA, which was the greatest betrayal of the American working class since the 1948 Taft-Hartley Act, uh, but also after the omnibus crime bill, uh, which uh, visited untold suffering on uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of families within this country. Uh, Biden was, uh, of course, uh, very involved in that, the whole three strikes, you're outlaws. I mean, the insanity of locking people away for life for drug offenses. Uh, the doubling and tripling of sentences, the militarization of police, that all uh, was done by Clinton, uh, wasn't a secret, and Bernie was at, and the destruction of welfare. I mean, he destroyed the welfare system. 70% of the original recipients were children, and Bernie was out there campaigning for Clinton. So, uh, you know, Bernie, and the quid pro quo is that Bernie does not foster third-party movements in Vermont. I was born in Vermont, uh, and, uh, and the Democrats don't uh, you know, they don't, there's never a serious challenge to his Senate run. So that's always been Bernie's political constraint. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, you're right. He co-opted the language, but you know, you're not going to build a political revolution in an election cycle that ends with him calling for you to vote for Hillary Clinton. Well said. Uh, one of the things I, I've always said to Bernie Sanders, he's an independent, I would like to see Bernie Sanders use his independent title for some type of leverage. Uh, for example, if the Democratic Party says, Bernie Sanders, we need your support on this bill in the Senate in order for it to pass, I would say, well, not until you bring Medicare for all to the floor for a vote. You're not going to get my vote. You're not going to get my support. I wish Bernie Sanders would do that because otherwise it's like if you're always just going to caucus with the Democrats and not try to use your independent title for some type of leverage, then I feel like you just might as well be a Democrat. Well, he is a Democrat. Same way the squad is. The squad's completely capitulated because they don't want to end up like Cynthia McKinney. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't expect much from politicians. I was on Brianna's show and she said, you know, how do you feel about these people who gaslight and manipulate the public? I said, well, that's the definition of a politician. That's what they do. Uh, I, you know, politicians are... People who want to do that kind of stuff have kind of, uh, you know, in my mind, a kind of personality flaw. Um, uh, so it, it's all about movements. It's all about uh, pitting power against power. And the only power we have are, are in numbers. One of the things that I did notice uh, when Bernie ran in 2020, you know, I noticed that he really didn't go after Joe Biden's record. Uh, not like he could have, especially in that final debate when it was just him and Joe Biden. I was like, I was watching that and I said to myself, like, he's not really, I don't think he's really trying to win this. I said, I don't know what it is, but I feel like there's so many things that you could have said about Joe Biden's things that he's done policy wise. And I felt like Bernie in a way, 
I felt like he really wasn't fighting there in the end. And I had to ask myself, why didn't he call out Joe Biden's record the same way Kamala Harris did, the same way Cory Booker did? And I want to get your opinion about that. He even went on to say that Joe Biden was his good friend multiple times throughout the debates. Why do you feel he didn't attack Biden's record the way that some of the other candidates on that debate stage did? Because he doesn't want to antagonize the Democratic Party leadership to an extent that they'll destroy destroy him. That's why. Uh, and he's uh, acutely aware that if he crosses that, a particular line, he's finished. It's same with AOC. You know, I mean, they've all capitulated. I mean, this is a funneling of $54 billion to Ukraine is nuts. It's, it's more than we spend on the EPA, you know, which addresses the actual existential crisis that we all face, which is the climate crisis. Agreed. Um, one more thing about Bernie, and I'll jump off the Bernie thing. Uh, but one more thing, uh, when he lost in 2016, and even after 2016, I said, okay, he's running again 2020. Uh, if he doesn't win this time, I sincerely want him to do it this time. I wanted Bernie Sanders to start a third party movement or some type of third party organization. I felt like he has the name recognition to do it. And he had a lot of supporters and he chose not to do that. He said that if he lost, he would still be outside with his people, with his movement. And I feel like you can't just, well, apparently, I guess you can, but I feel like you shouldn't just start a movement and say, I'm starting a revolution here and then kind of just walk away from it and say, okay, I lost, vote for Joe Biden. So I want to get your opinion. Like, do you know why you think he did not try to start some type of third party uh, organization? Well, for that reason, that, that he would have been finished. I mean, I, I worked for Nader. Ralph Nader had uh, name recognition, certainly had, some, you know, a couple decades ago was equal to perhaps even greater than the name recognition of Bernie Sanders. Uh, and they destroyed Ralph. They turned him into a pariah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was at, Cornell West and I were with uh, uh, unhoused people who marched on the appropriately named Wells Fargo Center in 2016, several thousand people. And it was when the, uh, Bernie was endorsing uh, Clinton and his delegates walked out and, and they were of the convention hall were chanting, chanting uh, uh, what does democracy look like? This is what democracy looked like. And Bernie didn't join them. And Cornell, who's prescient about everything, said, you know, Bernie's missed his historical moment. And I think that's right. But Bernie just lacks the political courage. Uh, and has always lacked the political courage. Do you think that he should run in 20? He has hinted that if Joe Biden doesn't run in 2024, uh, that he's entertaining running again in 2024. Do you think uh, that he should Dem do that? Democrats will never allow Bernie Sanders to be the nominee, ever. And, and, and history has proven that. I mean, they not only use the DNC as a weapon against him, Obama, uh, who you remember Biden started in the primaries. He was a disaster. Nobody wanted him. And then the Democratic Party found their savior in Michael Bloomberg, of all people, a billionaire who, you know, one week is a Republican and the next week is a Democrat. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, and then Obama had to get everyone to drop out. Uh, so uh, the, the, the Democrats, I mean, they were, they stole the Nevada caucus. I mean, there's uh, they disenfranchised voters. Uh, independent voters, especially because they tend to be young and they tend to vote. There were a lot of dirty tricks that the Democrats used. It, he'll never, they'll never allow him to be the nominee. It's impossible. Mm. 
Something interesting, too, that's happened recently. There's a third-party candidate. I'm not sure if you've heard about this. He's running for Senate for North Carolina, uh, Matthew Hull. He's a, Matt's mm-hmm. a good friend of mine. And look, it's a very good example. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but look what they did. You can explain. I mean, there's a perfect example. Absolutely. Uh, Matthew Ho met all of the requirements that he needed as a third party candidate. There was a certain number of signatures that you have to collect. He got more than that amount. And the Democratic Party in North Carolina decided to start calling people that were on that list, not only just calling them, but actually dropping by their homes and asking them if they actually meant to sign it. Uh, Obviously, they did. And so they decided that there were like, I think, five signatures that they thought were a little suspicious. So they decided just to throw it all out to prevent him from getting on the ballot. And that was that was three Democrats and two Republicans on the committee. And so the same thing happens with the debates. So the, the, the it's a it's not run by the League of Women Voters anymore. It's it's a private corporation, usually sponsored by the healthcare industry and the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, they, I mean, I wouldn't want to debate Ralph Nader. They don't, they didn't, never allowed Nader on the debates. If you go back when Kucinich was running the primaries, they said, well, it had to be in the top four. Well, I think at a certain point, I can't remember what state, I think it was maybe New Hampshire. I can't remember. It was fairly early. Kucinich was in the top four and they just changed the rules because that debate was sponsored by uh, the insurance industry and, and Dennis calls for universal health care. So the the system's completely fixed. It's fixed. I mean, it's so rotten. We have we have the Democratic Party spending millions of dollars to fund far-right candidates in the primaries as if that's to get them uh, the nomination because they think they'll be easier to beat. And if you go back and look at the Podesta emails that were published by WikiLeaks, the Clinton campaign was working overtime to make sure Trump was the nominee because they thought he would be the easiest to pick off. It's just insane. These people are so out of touch. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm getting old myself, but I mean, Pelosi's 83, Schumer's what, 71, Biden's, what is he, 79 or something, 78. I mean, they are live in a, in, a, in a time warp. They're completely disconnected from the reality in the country. They're going to get shellacked in the midterms. Uh, so then you've got Congress and a Supreme Court in the hands of these proto-fascists, and I think they'll come back. If it's not Trump, it'll be DeSantis or you know Pompeo or one of these other who are actually more dangerous than Trump because Trump's incompetent. I can see that happening as well. Actually, we just did a poll recently on this show um, about who people thought would win in 2024, and the majority of people ended up voting for, I think it was DeSantis, uh, that they think would win in 2024 if Joe Biden ran again. Um, but I, I think when you talk about the system, you know, being fixed, what do you say to people who still, you know, want to try and believe in that strategy of like trying to put progressive through the Democratic Party? Like, I don't think it works because I feel like you are taking them and you're putting them into a system that they're supposed to be fighting against, Right. They're fighting against corruption. They're supposed to be against corporate money, but you're putting them into the same party that is corporate owned. And that party isn't really going to let them do what they want to do. I think we've seen that multiple times Uh, recently with Nina Turner. She came forward and she said in a recent interview with uh, Status Quo that the squad did not support her for her recent campaign because they were threatened. 
And they went on to say some of those threats included losing committee assignments, having primary challengers. I don't really consider that a threat per se, but those were some of the threats that they received. So what do you say to people that still want to try to do that strategy? And if progressive members in Congress were to contact you today and ask you for advice, what advice would you give them? Well, they have to care more about their principles than they do about their career. Uh, and, and unfortunately, they care more about their career than they do about their principles. They don't want to pay the price. They don't want to pay the political price. Uh, so uh, I, I don't, you know, there's very few people, uh, you know, Matt is a perfect example. The Democrats were terrified of Matt Ho because he ain't going to back down. Um, so they had to eradicate him. Uh, they had to uh, make sure that he couldn't even run as a candidate. I mean, it shows you how frightened they are because I don't think the Green Party is going to pose any kind of a real threat. They went after Jill Stein. Uh, they went after Ralph. Uh, I think Ralph's height, I think he pulled in 2000 about 4%. Uh, but Ralph, uh, at one point in the campaign, uh, rented out Madison Square Garden. He didn't actually have the money to do it, uh, but he just charged everyone at the door, I think $5, and managed to pay for it, and he filled Madison Square Garden. The Democrats saw that, and they just freaked out. So they know that uh, they nobody wants them, uh, that people vote mostly uh, against those they hate, not for those who they want. Uh, they're desperately flailing around, the Democrats, Roe v. Wade. I mean, they're culpable for Roe v. Wade. They had 20 years when they could have codified that in a law. And they yeah. didn't because they used it as a fundraising strategy and a campaign tactic. I mean, the cynicism is pretty dark. And the, and the media doesn't help because it, it perpetuates this myth of a two-party system on almost every major issue. There's no difference between the Republican and the Democratic parties on trade deals, militarized police, wholesale surveillance, uh, the military budget, 38% of all military spending uh, in the world is in our military. We spend more than the next nine countries combined, uh, including Russia and China. Uh, there's no difference between them. Uh, it, it's it's, it's the, what Freud called the narcissism of minor difference. Abortion's not a minor difference, but it, it's cultural issues. And politi politically, economically, there's, they're the same. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, they all, if they may not, you know, they, uh, when Obama gets into office, uh, he perpetuates these wars in the Middle East. In fact, he increases the fighting in Afghanistan and, and, ex and massively expands the drone warfare. Is a, Obama's assault on civil liberties worse than those under George W. Bush, if you can believe it. Uh, Obama used the Espionage Act nine times against whistleblowers, including against Snowden. So, and Chelsea Manning and everyone else. So, yeah, they're all the, they're all cut from the same cloth. Uh, and they spend a lot of money. I mean, Clinton, uh, I think finally in the end, spent a billion dollars on that campaign uh, because it's all smoke and mirrors. It's, it's all advertising. It's all burlesque. It's all vaudeville. When, when Obama ran in 2016, Kucinich gave me Obama's two-year voting record in the Senate. He said, read this. And it was appalling. It was every corporate giveaway. Obama supported the death penalty, anything they wanted. And, and as, as Dennis said, he, he said, you know, when I went to uh, baseball games in Cleveland, they'd go up. I'm imitating Dennis. They'd go up and down the aisle saying, get your scorecard, get your scorecard. He said, that's the scorecard. Forget everything else. But we don't look at the scorecard. We get 
seduced by uh, political advertising, which is very sophisticated and very well done. And then, of course, by a media. All they ever do is talk about polls. They never talk about issues. And, and everything replicates a sports contest. I mean, even the way they'll sit up, set up the desks and there's one loony who supports Trump and, and somebody who supports Biden and they both lie through their teeth. And, uh, and, and there's a cynicism to it. Uh, uh, but it's, it's all, uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's anti-politics. It's all completely vapid. It's all void of actual issues and actual ideas. And, uh, of course, and now we've cut ourselves off. We live in a society where nobody reads anymore, um, uh, which is scary to people like me and Cornell and Noam and everyone else. Uh, I, I don't know how you can truly understand capitalism if you don't if, at least read the first volume, I don't pretend it's easy, the first volume of Capital by Marx. I mean, uh, you know, Rosa Luxemburg. I mean, all these great revolutionary theorists, uh, Malcolm, I mean, it, it, they read in a prison because they, they can't spend all day on the Internet. Uh, but uh, that book, Malcolm Speaks, that's a really still to this day a really important book for my students. Uh, there's more depth and political kind of understanding in the prison classrooms than there are, I've taught at Princeton, Columbia, and other places than there are in those classrooms, uh, partly because all of those kids in the elite schools want to be part of the 1%, but also because my students in the prison who are what Gramsci would call organic intellectuals. I mean, they're, they've turned their cells into libraries. They're serious, serious intellectuals. They just never came out of a system, a school system that gave them a chance. But they're victims of white supremacy. They're victims of institutional racism. They're victims of capitalism. They're victims of police violence. So the, the discussion begins at a level that these kids in Princeton can never, never reach. And they read. They read. Uh, and... Uh, you know, there's a seriousness there uh, that I suppose, you know, that's where I find my hope. They're kind of amazing guys, especially I've been in there now since 2010. They're finally getting out and really contributing to the community. But we're going to have to um, go back to doing a lot of things that, that successful organizers did in the past uh, and stop being seduced by electronic hallucinations. I agree with that. I think something that the pandemic kind of opened my eyes to, especially during that time, because we were shut down here in Massachusetts. I didn't know my neighbors. Mm. And how do you, I'm like, how do you live here for like in this building for five years and you don't even know the people that live next door to you? So I think that was kind of like a wake up call for me. So I think that's something that the pandemic kind of, kind of forced me to slow down a bit and realize like we don't have community here. We need to work on building some type of community. Well, you, you know, I so I, I'm a gym rat. I go to the gym every day. My gym is clo closed. But I like that community because it, it connects you with people you wouldn't normally be connected with in the same way that if you live next to somebody you can't choose. And uh, and that really can foster. I was just went out to Illinois, to Marion, Illinois, to visit Daniel Hale, a very courageous whistleblower who exposed all of the civilian killings by the drones he was uh, uh, in the Air Force and was a drone operator. He's now spending 45 months in a high security prison in Marion. I didn't get in. I'm going back. They're going to apparently let me in. But so I went to the gym and I spent four hours working out and lifting with uh, one of the corrections officers who works at the prison and a member of the Illinois State Police. And, you know, that is 
I don't come from where they come from. Uh, but you have to hear. Um, you ha if you can build those kinds of bridges, as, as uh, Lord Salisbury said, there's no, uh, there's no permanent allies, there's only permanent power. I mean, this was, of course, let's go back to the brilliance of Fred Hampton and why the authorities were so frightened of him. Um, that Fred, who certainly was acutely aware of racism, also understood that those class divisions were used against us. Um, and, we, and I worry about the left because it's, uh, let's talk about the educated left, uh, because they're so caught up in this boutique activism and this kind of cancel culture where for the slightest faux pas, you write people off. I mean, Shama Sawan, I think, has pointed out, we're never going to reach the working class of any color if we walk into those communities. First of all, you don't reach those people unless you go in and listen. I mean, all of my ideas of prison reform don't come from anything I thought up. They come from listening to my students who are incarcerated, who know full well how to break the back of mass incarceration, which are campaigns to pay them a minimum wage because the systems couldn't sustain itself economically if, and, and people in prisons are working 40 hour weeks if they were paid minimum wage. That, that's what they, like the Free Alabama Movement, all those, and I'm a Presbyterian minister, and I was called in to speak to the church, and so well, that's what they want to do. And, and the church was appalled, and I said, well, it's really not up to you. It's up to them if you don't want to listen to them, which they don't, because they're liberals. Um, they want to look like they're doing something. I mean, I spoke at Harvard during the Occupy Movement, and the, Harvard was quite astute about how to choke off the Occupy movement. So you had a group of tents in the middle of Harvard Yard. Interestingly, they weren't Harvard undergraduates. They were graduate students, most of whom had gone to Berkeley. And they had set up their tents. And then they put campus police at every entrance into Harvard Yard, at every gate. And nobody was allowed to get in unless they had a 20, if they weren't a Harvard ID, unless you had a 24-hour pass signed by the president of Harvard. Well, I had a lecture, so I had one. And I gave my lecture. I was at the, they were supposed to stay at the faculty club. And uh, they said, okay, well, you know, we'll take you back to faculty. And I said, no, no, I'm sleeping in Harvard Yard with the, with the kids. And uh, they, uh, the deans met and finally campus security came down at 11 and said, okay, because I said, I got a pass. Uh, it's legal. I can stay here. And uh, they said, okay, you can stay if you don't create problems. Well, the next morning, I hadn't slept because, I wanted to sleep, but they wanted to talk. So uh, I stumble unshaven and unshowered into the uh, faculty club to have breakfast with the dean of the divinity school. And he said, well, you know, we, we really want to, uh, at Harvard Divinity School, be uh, relevant, you know, to the Occupy movement. And, you know, just wondering what you thought we could do. And I said, well, the faculty could go out and sleep in the middle of Harvard Yard like I did last night. Well, well of course, they don't want to do that. They want to appear relevant. That's what liberals always want to do. Never forget that. Um, they're uh, really, I, I, uh, I can, I, I lift weights with a guy who's like a big donor for APAC, and I used to before the gym closed, uh, and was a commodity trader on Wall Street. I mean, commodity traders are satanic. I, I can deal with him better than I can deal with liberals because at least he is who he says he is. Yes, I've experienced that a lot with. Uh with volunteer work where a lot of times, like you said, like with Harvard, a lot of them were the Harvard students or they would show up and they'd say, okay, this is something that I get credit for and I get to put it on my resume. And I'm like, well, no, you have to actually do work. 
<laughs> like you can't just show up and, and write this down and say you did it. You This is labor. Like you actually have to do work. Um, I do want to show you uh, a clip really quick. Uh, this was Ralph Nader. I'm not sure if you've seen this, but there was something he pointed out in this clip that I thought was really important. Uh, this interview took place two years ago. And they were asking Ralph Nader about how he was able to fight back against against GM during that time. So I just want to play this segment real quick. And we could never have achieved what we did in the 60s and 70s if we had the Congress that occurs now, which is indentured to Wall Street, to big money, uh, to gerrymandering, uh, predictable elections for the most case, safe districts, lack of competition. Have, didn't you have... Plutocrats in the 1960s, you had very wealthy Americans, the, the kind of people who, who may have owned the car companies or the banks back then. They weren't as organized. They didn't have political action committees. When I took on GM, they didn't even have a lobbying office in Washington, D.C. Uh, now they're much more organized, and it teaches us a lesson. When we beat them, they come back even stronger if we don't become more organized. Democracy is all about civic organization. It's not just public opinion, that's important as a brooding omnipresence signaling to the lawmakers that the bulk of the people are behind the few activists that are in the vanguard. Okay. I wanna get your take on that. He talks about political action committees that they didn't have to worry about that back then. It was easier for him to fight against GM. And he said like he couldn't do it with the Congress that we have today. And I wanna get your opinion about political action committees because I've shown like donor information on my show multiple times. And sometimes people will comment and they'll say, oh, well, that's a safe pack, that's okay. And I'm like, well, I don't, is it? I don't know. I mean, they're, they're taking corporate money. So I wanna get your opinion about political action committees. Is, do you think there's a such thing as a safe political action committee? No, they're all bought off, moveon.org. I mean, I was involved in the whole organizing when Obama, remember, promised that we were all going to have the public option and then betrayed us uh, and moveon.org suddenly said, well, we have to support Obamacare, uh, which is a disaster uh, because we have to get Obama elected. Well, they were meeting with Democratic strategists every week. They, you know, they've all been all the environmental groups get not all, corporate money. I mean, there are very, very, very few groups that have retained their integrity. They've, they've all been bought off. Well, Ralph, uh, I, I admire Ralph immensely, uh, and nobody has been fighting corporate power longer, more successfully and with more integrity than Ralph Nader. Uh, and what happened and is that during the Clinton administration, there was a California congressman named Tony Coelho, and he and Clinton conspired to get corporate money. They said, we can get corporate money and we'll do corporate bidding. Uh, so we'll take back the law and order issue. Biden was in on all of this. Uh, we'll slash taxes. We'll deregulate uh, the FCC. We'll destroy Glass-Steagall. We'll do anything you want. Uh, we'll deindustrialize. We'll pass NAFTA. We'll, uh, and sure enough, they, they did get corporate money. Well, what, what they also did is destroyed that left wing within the Democratic Party, people like Proxmire, Fulbright, and others. Uh, now, Ralph wrote 24 pieces of legislation, major legislation, the Mine and Safety Act, the Clean Air Act, all sorts of stuff. But then this liberal wing of the Democratic Party, or let's call it a left wing populist, they pushed it through Congress. Uh, but then these people were all eradicated. That's why Ralph ran. He said, "There's not. I don't have any, there, I have no leverage anymore in Washington at all. And that began with the Clinton administration. So Ralph, Ralph who's kind of 
like me, doesn't really enjoy politics too much. Uh, but he, the goal was never to win. Ralph never thought he'd win. The goal was to pull 5, 10, 15 million people out to begin to scare the crap out of the Democratic Party and make them respond. Uh, because politics is a game of fear. That was always Ralph's intent. And I uh, believed and believe now that uh, uh, that is the only weapon by which change will occur when we begin to step outside the system in an organized way and 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 challenge it and frighten it. But, but th of course, we're all going to be, it's going to be a kind of seduction by the Democratic Party to uh, with all the empty promises, I mean, can't the campaign all the campaign promises of Biden? What's he done? Uh, we he didn't raise the minimum wage. He didn't forgive student debt. His Build Back Better bill is gutted. I mean, he hasn't done anything. Uh, nor did, was he ever going to do anything. Uh, and uh, um, they, they, so they'll use that, and then they'll use fear. Uh, and these figures like Trump and DeSantis and Pompeo, and they they're fearful figures, but they they are creations of a system that seized up and no longer functions on behalf of the American people. And so there's a huge rage. Remember that poor people of color, the, 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 the reason we have the prison system as big as we have, it's 25% of the world's prison population, although we're less than 5% of the world's uh, population. The reason we have such a large uh, prison population, the reason we have converted police forces into paramilitary armies of occupation in internal colonies, as Malcolm called them. The reason that happened is because with deindustrialization, the social bonds, as the sociologist Emile Durkheim calls them, that knit people to a society, work, place, stability, uh, a living wage, uh, a, a stable home, good schools, all of that was taken. And so uh, with those social bonds ruptured, then the two mechanisms for social control become militarized police and prisons. So you've essentially denuded within uh, urban areas, uh, primarily people of color. You've removed the men from the street and you don't just remove them for a year or two. I mean, these sentences are ridiculous. Uh, I've taught people in prison who have life sentences and never committed a violent crime. 40% of the people in our prison system are not, not, not charged with physically ever harming another person, and nobody gets a jury trial. Only 94% are forced, coerced, to plea out. Uh, so that means the prosecutor and the police stack all sorts of charges against you. They know you didn't commit, and then they use them as bargaining chips. But if you actually go to trial, and then you don't get adequate legal representation, all of those charges, and it's your word against the cops, you're finished. Uh, and that's the tragedy, because the students that I teach with the longest sentences are usually innocent. They, they didn't commit the crime, but they were foolish enough to go to trial. Uh, so you, you, you have destroyed, and that economic statistic that you cited is important because uh, black families in particular have suffered far more than white families, no comparison. But you also have uh, disenfranchised the white working class. Half of my family, my mother's side of the family, comes out of the white working class in Maine. So I've seen it the opinion, political and cultural and social opinions they hold are indefensible, uh, but they're angry. Uh, it's a gun culture. They're all veterans. Uh, and the difference, and James Baldwin points this out between, he, he said the, the, there's a wonderful essay. I can't remember which one it is, but anyway, everyone should read all of James Baldwin. Uh, but there's an essay where he talks about why uh, 
black people don't have a midlife crisis. He said, because when you grow up black, you know the system's fixed against you from the moment you come out of the womb. But if you're white, you can be fooled into thinking, oh, I can be anything, the Oprah stuff. You know, I can be anything I want to be. I can achieve. I can. But then, of course, you get to be about 40 and you realize your life is as dead end, is a dead end. Like I'm talking about, you know, the uneducated, uh, unskilled working class is a dead end. Uh, and that creates, so that's created the kind of rage that uh, we're now seeing that is contributing to the rise of this Christian fascist movement, I've called it proto-fascist movement, whatever you want to call it, but this kind of very frightening uh, authoritarianism. Uh, and, and, it, and it is a way, uh, I mean, look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, she's a total nutcase, uh, but, uh, you know, these people feel victimized and they're not wrong. They have been victimized. Uh, and uh, the more vulgar, the cruder, uh, the, the more the more these people speak in the language of violence, the more popular they become. Uh, and so I spent two years writing a book on the Christian right called American Fascist, the Christian right in the war in America. And I came to the conclusion at the end of the book that the only way to break the back of the movement, because they all engage in magical thinking. Hannah Arendt writes about this. You know, when life becomes just so unpalatable, um, you you create a, a world of uh, irrationality uh, to cope, and and you can't argue these people back into the rational world. You know that 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 the world was created in six days, and uh, uh, Adam and Eve, who were real people, lived with dinosaurs or whatever. You can't do that. Uh, it isn't going to work because you're you're attempting to push them back into that fact-based, reality-based world that almost destroyed them. And the only way to break the back of the movement, I wrote the book 10 years ago, is to reincorporate these people back into the economy and into the society. And of course, we've done the opposite and now we're paying for it. But the Democrats bear a tremendous amount of blame, in some ways worse than the Republicans, because it used to be in the old Democratic Party pre-Clinton that labor had some voice, that there was some uh, they took in, uh, you know, it took into account labor as a force within the party. Well, they abandoned labor completely. That was Clinton. Uh, and Thomas Frank wrote a really good book, really funny book about this. He goes to one of these Clinton meetings in Boston. Everybody should read that chapter. It's hilarious with all these kind of, you know, liberals, how we're all going to be entrepreneurs and all this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, and, and so, yeah, the Democratic Party is as culpable for where we are as, as the Republican Party. I have uh, two more questions for you. Do you think, well, the first one is um, in reference to donors. I talked about this last night. Jeffrey Katzenberg donates to Democrats, donated $20 million to TYT, is also donating money to Liz Cheney. Uh, so they, they share donors, right? And that means to me that they have shared interests. Do you think it'll ever be possible to get corporate money out of politics and why or why not? Well, no. I mean, all these people petitioning their Congress people to revoke Citizens United. Well, their Congress people are only there because of Citizens United. If, if, if there was no corporate funding uh, of the political system, all these figures like Pelosi and Schumer, and they wouldn't exist. They wouldn't have their political power. The power of a Schumer and Pelosi comes because they're the conduits of that money. So Wall Street gives the money and they, they anoint which candidates get it and which don't. That's their power. And uh, the whole system is so corrupt that it isn't going to reform itself 
because if it reformed itself, it would reform itself out of existence. It isn't going to do that. Uh, so it really becomes mass movements. I mean, uh, that's it. Uh, I mean, you look at the farmers' protests in Europe. That's great. I mean, yeah, I, I've been in Paris. I used to live in Paris. So I've been in Paris when farmers with tractors come in and shut the city down. That's the kind of stuff we have to do uh, all the way around. And students especially, I mean, if you live in a civilized country, you don't pay for college. That's right. The debt peonage that uh, is burdened upon these kids is just appalling and they can't make any money. It's just terrible. Uh, and then Congress passes a bill that you can never get out of it, even if you declare bankruptcy. That's Congress. That's Democrats and Republicans. They're all working for the same people, like Goldman Sachs. You you can't vote Goldman Sachs out of power. It doesn't matter who's in power. Just like you can't vote the war industry, like Victoria Newland and all these. Uh, yep. you, she worked. She was Cheney's chief foreign policy advisor. She worked for Biden. She worked for Obama too. So, yeah, they're all the same. Uh, I mean, the the Democrats are a little slicker, perhaps. Uh, but they're they're just as morally bankrupt and frankly just as evil. I mean they they you know Biden the Biden gets a pass. I mean I, I go into that prison every I think you know half of those students or more wouldn't even be there but for Joe Biden. And what has he done to their right. children? What has he done to their families? What has he done to them? What has he done to their communities? There should be a price to pay for that, but nobody's making him pay it. That's a good point. Uh, my goal. Um, and this is going to be very tough, but my goal is I'm trying to educate, especially African-Americans about the Democratic Party. And I'm trying to get people to just stop, like stop voting in the two party system. You don't owe them your vote. If you're going to vote, vote third party independent. It's not easy. Uh, I will tell you that much. It's not easy to change their minds. But I think more people are starting to wake up because of their economic conditions right now, uh, given the state of the country. But uh, the last question I do have for you, I'm glad that you mentioned the third party strategy because I think people don't understand. I've heard people say this before. Well, third party can't win. Independent can't win. I'm like, that's not the strategy. You're supposed to take votes away from Democrat and Republican. You're supposed to make noise, right? Yeah. Well, everything, everything becomes about pushing back in every way possible, not being, if you're, you're not being passive because if you're passive, you're complicit. Right. Uh, and, and the longer we're passive uh, and complicit with the system, and, and certainly the last few decades have borne this out, the worse it gets. Uh, but people don't want to step out. They're, they're, they're demonized within the society for doing so. I mean, Ralph's blamed for electing Bush, which is ridiculous because they stopped the counting in Florida after two counties, bumped it up to the Supreme Court and appointed Bush president by judicial fiat, overturning every legal norm that I'm aware of. And Gore couldn't even carry his own state of Tennessee. So uh, they they will be relentless That's in right. terms of going after you. Uh, but our only hope is uh, to begin to organize where we, in a, in a sophisticated way, where we understand that the ruling oligarchy, Republican and Democrat, has now created a system of gross injustice. Uh, we've undergone what John Ralston saw calls a corporate coup d'etat. It's over. They've won. Uh, and, and, and the only way now is to push back through sustained mass civil disobedience that disrupts the system to such an extent that it can't function. 
Well said. Um, the final question for you, um, we have kind of created a political dream team, so to speak, so to say, like um, the Olympics dream team with with Jordan back in the day. And every time we created matchups, your name came up. We have matched you up with Cynthia McKinney. We've matched you with Cornell West. We've matched you with Jill Stein. And so I have to ask this question. Do you think that you would ever consider running for president as a third party or independent candidate? The Green Party's reached out to me, Jill did, about running with her before. I've always said no for a couple reasons. Uh, one, uh, even if you're a good politician, uh, you're attempting to get people to vote for you. And as somebody who is a dissident and a writer, I will often take very unpopular stances, even among my own constituency. So in 2016, when I was going around saying, don't vote for Obama, I was being booed in places like Berkeley and, and people walking out. I'm very against pornography. I've been very uh, written quite extensively. I mean, which is not another thing on the that the left, you know, they look at it as a system of, so I worry that, you know, my particular role is as a writer. And then of course I have a show, I had a show on RT, used to be on Telesur, but we've reconstituted out of Baltimore, the real news where I interview writers and intellectuals and dissidents and activists. Um, and I kind of think for people like myself and Cornell, you know, the, the, the role that we've carved out as social critics is to be kind of eternal heretics. Cornell did campaign for Obama. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, I've kind of kind of run from that, honestly. Also, I, I'll say, I think if you do it, you better want to do it. And I kind of want to be home with my books and my two rescue greyhounds and my kids. <laughs> awesome. Well said, Chris Hedges. Thank you so much for coming on and taking the yeah. time. No, thanks thank for doing it. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.